Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So there will always be that minority of people who've got adventure in their blood, and they'll find adventure, whatever society is doing. Welcome to Season 3 of the Adventure Podcast and the first episode of the series with Sir Chris Bonington. We've got an exciting season in store for you, uh, featuring the likes of George Monbiot for the second time as he regales us with tales from his time spent in Brazil, and Nick Bullock, mountaineer, misfit and ex-high security prison officer, speaking about his expedition to Mount Gonga in the Sichuan region of China. I spoke to Vedangi Kulkarni, a young Indian woman who cycled around the world aged 19, and Pip, our producer, recorded a conversation between Ben Saunders and Tarka Lerpinier as they reflected on the record-breaking Scott expedition that they undertook back in 2013. As ever, um, or perhaps more so at the moment, we hope these stories of adventures from around the world and closer to home will inspire and nourish that... um, adventurous spirit within all of us. We've come a really long way from dreaming this podcast up in a Danish service station and we're now proud to have partnered with Acast. They're the largest podcast distribution platform in the world and we're excited to work with them as we endeavour to bring the podcast to as many people as we possibly can. If you enjoy these stories then please do help us spread the word. So Sir Chris Bonington I'll leave it to him to introduce himself, um, but there are two things that come up in the conversation that I should give you the backstory on. The first is that when Chris mentions his friend Doug, he's referring to mountaineering legend Doug Scott. And when he references Leo, he's referring to Leo Holding, who I'm hoping you'll be familiar with from our Rorima expedition series. If you haven't heard of him, then you can find all of the episodes we recorded in the Guyana jungle in our archives. Secondly, we recorded this conversation uh, up in Chris's home in Cumbria shortly before lockdown. As is the nature of this podcast, the conversations aren't recorded in the studio, and I was clearly uh, so excited to be interviewing one of my boyhood heroes that I didn't notice there was a battery on the smoke detector that needed changing in Chris's office. So we hope you'll find the occasional chirp worth putting up with and um, I'll probably start carrying a pack of double A's in future so that it doesn't happen again. Okay, over to Chris. Thank you very much for doing this. I know you're busy. Pleasure to do it. Um, Obviously, you've done a lot of these things before. Most people know exactly who you are. But can you just give us a very brief introduction to, well, who you are? Um, right, I'm Chris Bonington. Um, I'm a climber and a mountaineer, and uh, I actually have managed to make, finally managed to make a living around climbing by realising that, firstly, I didn't want to be a mountain guide because I love climbing to the limit, and therefore I was able eventually to find a way of actually, I did spectacular climb like the north wall of the Eiger and that actually got me into the public domain and I was asked to give lectures, started writing and so basically my my profession to a degree is actually being a communicator. I write, I lecture, I talk about it and communicate about it, that's the job and the hobby is still climbing, that's the passion of my life. And do you enjoy the job as much as you enjoy the climbing? Oh, no, well, no. I mean, I, I do enjoy the life, the 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 job itself. I I 
I'm challenged by it. I'm not a natural writer. I really struggle with every book and every chapter I write. Um, but I get a deep satisfaction from it. Um, lecturing, I thoroughly enjoy. But if you're doing it, say, in the old days, when um, after a big expedition, and you'd give 30 lectures on Southwest Faith, Furfurst, whatever it is, that becomes, yeah, repetitive. These days it's great because I, I only do a little bit of public lecturing. There's much more variety. And it's also, it's amazing, I've been busier in the last year than I've been for years. But, um, you know, I enjoy it. But I, I'd hate not to do it. But um, we're trying to run it down a little bit, so I'm not doing quite so much. I was going to say, are you busy deliberately? Or is it just... It's no, no, it's the fact that you're in demand. It's no, and that, I mean, seem to be in greater demand than I have been for years. And, uh, yeah, I suppose it's good for the ego, but it's also it's good for the bank balance. And um, it's, yeah, I enjoy doing it. No, I loved what I do. Nice. And I'm wary, you know, you've done a lot of interviews before and I don't particularly want to go and do the full chronology because we can read about that in numerous books and interviews online. But... Were you an adventurous child? I think I was, oh, without a shadow of doubt. I think, no, two things. I think, firstly, I had very adventurous genes in me uh, from both both from both from my, my mum's side and my dad's side. And I think those genes, and they were remarkable people, my, my, my grand and great-grandparents, and so that, um, I think, were the, the genes there. And then maybe that, I started being adventurous even. I think apparently, I think I was four. And I was born and brought up in Hampstead, which is a suburb of London. And it's backs on Hampstead Heath, which is a, a wonderful little bit of it. It's the closest thing you could have to a little wilderness within five miles of the centre of London. Uh, and that was my childhood playground. So anyway... Our, our house at that time backed on the heath and you could get out. There was a, a, a door, the garden, the door get, gate went through. And so I, went, I, I must have been about five, I think, four or five, and with a little girlfriend. And we got out and we went walkabout on the heath and vanished. And then um, I think my, my grandmother, who looked after me um, at the time, my mum was a single parent and she was out working, and um, I, I, they anyway, discovered I'd vanished and the police were called and everything else. And finally, it was a policeman who found us on Hampstead Heath and took us back to the police station. And, uh, and they made the big mistake of actually leaving us in the, the inspector's office in the Belsize Park Peace, police station by ourselves. And uh, I got into the fridge and there was a bottle of milk. And I didn't drink it. I just poured it all over his desk. And that, I can't remember doing that, but that's what I was told later on. And I, I was then also, uh, I went to boarding school at the age of five because my mum had wanted to get me out of London with the, the arrival of the war. And I loved escaping. And it, I wasn't escaping because I was unhappy at school. I was quite unhappy. At, I, was, I was happy at this little school up in um, the Lake District. But um, it was just to, you know, do what my dad did. And so, oh, we escaped. I even know it was my first leadership. I persuaded three of my young mates and we'd go on a big escape and we, we planned it carefully and we, we saved, we, you, had, you know, you had bacon and bacon rinds, etc. So we kept all the bacon rinds as rations. And then uh, there was, I think there was a, parent coming or something and they had um uh, they'd got a, a special fruit loaf specially for the parent this is the height of rationing and we pinched that too and then we just wandered off and we kind of we left i think we we escaped at about midday and um we ended up by a stream bank and we played all afternoon by the bank and everything else and then it was getting dark, and we wondered, well, God, wild animals, maybe we'll we better sleep in the tree. It's not easy to do that. It was height of summer. So anyway, as it was beginning to get a tiny bit darker, we then decided, well, we better get back to school. 
So did you get in trouble? I think we no, our punishment was um I think shortly after that the there was a, a play or something in Kendall and all the kids were taken to that play, but as a punishment we the three or four of us weren't and we had to stay behind and and so we stayed actually in the matron's room and she, she was lovely and so she had us up in her little bedroom and there was a fire burning and I can remember actually that little fire and she she read us stories all night so we probably had a better time than the, the kids who went to the play. Yeah well that's what I was going to ask and did that sort of behaviour continue? It did well um after that, no, I think I then settled down, came back to, to London. My mum finally took me, got me back to London in 1944. It was the height of the um, the Doolbugs and the V2 rockets. And we were, at that time, we were in Downshire Hill, which is a, is a very nice street in Hampstead, running down to the Heath. And we had a, a garden, we had a, an Anderson shelter. So we were in the shelter every night during, during the air raid warning, warnings. And um, I was immensely excited by it. And we even had a, an incendiary bomb landed in the garden next door to us. It didn't go off, but I thought that was fantastic. But, uh, and I think my mum well, was on the point of a nervous breakdown. <laughs> but uh, so that I was aware of all of these things. And, and it was only then really when, much later, when I was, um, oh, I must have been 15, and as then I, I went to the local, it was a private, well, local public day school, and um, and it was there that I, I and my or going back, uh, my grandfather was an, an amazing man himself. He was born German, and had gone to sea at the age of sixteen before the mast, and literally before the mast, he was in sailing ships and went all around the world doing that and then slowly rose because he was bright and clever and he ended up as the um, first mate of a ship uh, which was sailing for the East India Company it was a troop ship and it um, ran aground on an island in the Indian Ocean and he's very brave and saved people and as a reward for that he was given a nice shore job um, in Madras and then uh, went to the Andaman Islands, which is a British penal colony, and he de there he had nothing to do with the penal side of it, but he was made the harbour master because he it was essentially he'd also been involved with shipbuilding in his youth. He understood boats, and so and he then rose there from being um, well, just a, a German to change his name from Bernig to Bonington, and uh, he ended up getting an OBE. I've got a picture, you can have a picture of him it's next door. And uh, he was, um, and he became, you know, a respectable member of the middle classes, sending his children back home to, to England for, for schooling and everything else. Yeah, and listening to that story, you know, it, I'm envious just listening to it. And... To what extent do you think that opportunities for adventurous lives like that still exist now? I think I think the trouble today is that no, we we live in a granny state and we live in a we live in a, a world where I think everything is over safety conscious, and and you can see this. Uh, I mean, for instance, with outdoor activities, and I've seen it with Outward Bound, which um, I've been closely involved with. And it, the, I mean, uh, schools, for instance, or, or education authorities who owned and, and had outdoor activity centres, and they've closed them down, partly for economic reasons, but also partly because they have, they're afraid of the risks. And all too often, the if children do outdoor activities, they're doing them in the the base, the centre grounds, because it's you know, it's much safer to to pretend you're you're crossing an alligator-infested river on a, a nice lawn, rather than uh, actually taking the kids out or letting them go by themselves into the hills by themselves, which is what adventure is all about. So no, there are there are less opportunities, but I think the adventurous. I mean, look at 
say, Leo Holding, who's a great friend of mine, and look at the adventurous life that he's leading. So there will always be that um, that kind of minority of people who've got adventure in their blood, and they'll find adventure, whatever society is doing. Yeah, and you only have to spend time with Leo's children to see how much parenting can impact, you know, the adventurous streak in a child. Oh, he's fantastic. I mean, we we'd, he, when we do, you know, we have a Bonington walk every year with Berghouse and um, we go for a really nice walk somewhere. Uh, and it's great. It's voluntary and you get about 50 or 60 people coming on it from the company. Uh, and Leo always comes with us. And nearly always he's, he's got his youngest because he's in charge of of, of childminding that day. And uh, so gone on back and I think oh the things he's done with his children absolutely fabulous yeah we were packing for the last expedition and he brought his youngest into the bouldering wall that he's got and he was just soloing up to the top three years old mm. you know most adults would struggle to climb yeah. some of the stuff he was well doing, you've got so. no fear at that age it's wonderful yeah but the interesting thing as well I think is when you leave kids and youngsters on their own they are actually very sensible and um, wherever you have you know the an accident to an outdoor group. And when you look into it, it wasn't the children, the youngsters, who made the mistake. It was the leader, the adult leader, who made a mistake and got the children into that kind of trouble. Whereas if the children had just been on their own, in all probability, they'd have backed off a lot earlier. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Mm. I think people don't often think about it like that. And so when you were a young man... Were you actively seeking an adventurous life, or I couldn't? I once I discovered climbing and uh, and discovered adventure. Um, I I knew that the first time I I went, I, essentially even that was a, a, a kind of a, an independent breakaway in the sense that when I'd been staying with my grandfather in Ireland. Um, it was on the south of Dublin, and you could actually see the, the Wicklow Mountains from his back garden. And I, and I, I suppose my first climb ever was I, I got the bus to the foot of what's known as the Little Sugarloaf, which is a lovely little kind of mountain hill. And I knew, I, you know, I knew nothing about it, didn't have a map or anything like that. And I walked up it and climbed it and came back, and that was great. And then you went back... Uh, by sea from um, Dunleary to, to, to Hollyhead, and then the train going around the, um, the Welsh hills. And you don't see Snowdon from there as such, but, but what you did see, you go around, the, it's the north of the Carneda, and there's these valleys going into the hills. And what intrigued me was kind of, I'd love to go up that valley to see what's around the next corner. And that, I think, is that kind of, curiosity that that has been with me always and that's what I love about hills and mountains it's not so much standing on top of that mountain it's actually getting to the point at the top of the mountain where you can see the other side and so within all of that I then back at school persuaded a, a mate of mine at school to um, come up to Snowdon I thought it would be great Let's go and climb Snowdon House Mountain in Wales, which has the hardest winter for years, hitchhiked up. Um, I think I'd I'd actually gone to an army surplus store and bought a pair of hobnail boots, and I persuaded my mum to cut my school, uh, an old school Mac down, so it made it like an anorak. And Anton hadn't even done that, so he just had his school Mac and his school shoes. <laughs> we hitchhiked up to, stayed in the Capelcura Youth Hostel, and then went up to Penny Pass, and so we were, we were going to go basically up the um, the pig track. But of course, everything was covered in snow. The mountain was out; you couldn't see Snowdon, you couldn't see the top. And we nearly turned back, and then there was saw a couple of guys in the car park, who, you know, had ropes and ice axes and things. So we thought we'd we'll follow them, and so we followed them. We got, I think, we got about halfway along the pig track. You know, it goes quite high up. And, uh, and you've got Linlidor, isn't it, below you. And anyway, there's an avalanche, and we were swept away. And we were swept down, I don't know, several hundred feet, and we were lucky that we weren't swept over any 
any little cliffs because there were loads of cliffs there. We got to the bottom and shook ourselves out and um, went back to the youth hostel and Anton hitchhiked back to London the next day, never to go into the hills again. And I was totally hooked. And then I'd, on that, it was the last night and uh, the youth hostel was full and I wanted to stay another day. And so I found a little B&B to go and stay in. And it, as it happened, there were a couple of climbers staying in that B&B. And so they talked to me. And that's where I discovered this thing called rock climbing. And they talked about it. And then when I got home, I found a friend of the family, done a little bit of climbing, and he took me to Harrison Rocks, which is the little outcrop just to the south of London. And that was where it all started. Yeah, and the rest is history. Mm. And, but that's incredibly interesting, psychologically, that Anton made the decision to go home and never enter the mountains again. And you ended up becoming, you know, what you are now. But that's what, I mean, it's what you're born with, isn't it? That, that, that's your essential, I think we, we have, we're, we're born very much with the, the basic mental states we have. And okay, then environment affects it. But um, I think essentially it is, the, your essential characteristics are something you've inherited. And, uh, I mean, it's rather like with everything. It's like leadership. You can actually help people be better leaders, but you can't wave a wand with any amount of kind of tuition or courses or what have you to make them good leaders. The, the, the actual ability to lead, your, the ability to play a musical instrument, the ability to paint these are inherently things that are built that you've been born with yeah yeah that, okay that's it oh god i'd love to go down that rabbit hole for 20 minutes but we don't <laughs> have the time um so when you went on your first expedition can you just describe you know where it was who was there and what it was like as an experience for you well the very first expedition was when i was um i was still in the army and um i was actually um my, my regiment is Second Royal Tank Regiment, was armour, and uh, stationed in Germany. And I was invited, though, on an army expedition. It, had the, it was the British, Indian, Nepalese Combined Services Expedition to Annapurna II. And, um, and that was my first Himalayan expedition. And so that I went in, it was 1960, and... Uh, I was by that time I, I was a I was a very good alpinist. I'd done a lot of you know hard alpine climbing, and um, I was technically very very good as well. And I was certainly the strongest climber on the expedition. We had uh, we had one other very good mountaineer um, who was God, I've got, I'm terrible at remembering names, but anyway, he he was Royal Marine and had actually climbed Rakaposhi, but he wasn't a climber. He was just a very typical Royal Marine. And so there were two of us, and then the other two brothers, we had a flight lieutenant in the um, Air Force and a, a young soldier, a soldier as well, had been in the SAS. And so the four of us, and then we had two Nepalese army officers and two Indian army officers. And... Uh, that was a was an amazing expedition in many ways. And our leader was um, Jimmy Roberts, who was the military attaché in Kathmandu, and he was a colonel in, in the army. And uh, it was very much kind of up to us to do it. And I, it was a completely new experience for me. But because of my technical ability, and I, I am, an, I think, a natural good acclimatizer anyway, so it ended up with me and Dick Grant actually making the summit bid. And it is, Annapurna too is a serious mountain, and it's a superb peak. So that was that was a kind of a big kind of step in in the development of my climbing. But I think the other thing I did at the end of it and actually meant even more to me than actually reaching the top of Annapurna too. 
And at the end, we were probably the first people to do the Annapurna circuit. So we'd come in from Kathmandu, and in those days, there were no roads, and so you actually, you started your approach march from Kathmandu. And then we walked all the way into the north side of Annapurna, and Annapurna too. And then on the way out, we were going to carry on and cross the, um, the Thorongla, which takes you round things. So we're going to do the complete circuit. But what I wanted to do, I'd, I'd read, by this time, I'd, read, I'd, I'd just read every climbing book I could find. And Annapurna, Maurice um, Herzog's book, and the first ascent of Annapurna was my Bible. And so I wanted to go and cross the Tilico Pass, which he'd done. And so I just took my, my, my own personal Sherpa, and it was a wonderful man called Tashi, who was old enough to be my father. He, I think he was nearly 50. And he'd been a Sherpa on pre-war Everest expeditions. And um, the two of us so set out to walk across the Tilshow Pass. And that was, once again, that, that was kind of exploring. It was discovery. But it was also escaping from the big group. And, and so that, that my, my most vivid memories of that expedition was actually at the end of it, that walk across to the show pass. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's not all about, you know, twin ice axes and summit bids, is it? I mean, well, it is with some people, but, but not with me. What, I suppose what I'm fascinated by as well is when we think about the word expedition, you know, it goes a very, very long way back. Mm. And obviously, if you're British, it, you know, Scott comes to mind, etc., with what you were doing in those early days, were you pioneers of that style of expedition? Well, no, really, no. I was in no. I, I was inheriting um, expeditions as they'd always been done up to that time. And uh, I mean, Jimmy Roberts also. He he was a, a very good mountaineer, and he'd been on some of the pre-war um, Himalayan expeditions. Um, so that it was a yeah it was a a standard kind of siege style expedition where you had sherpas um, to carry the loads, but in those in that time it was sherpas carrying the loads, but the climbers actually making the route, and the sherpas were definitely kind of load carriers, and then some of the better sherpas yeah started becoming kind of natural climbers and leaders. And this, of course, on the 53 Everest expedition. Um, Ten Singh was, had actually been, well, been picked by the, um, the Swiss to go with them. And, uh, and he had, by that time, he, he was already yeah, climbing in his own right. But there were very few doing that at that time. And I suppose it's been totally flipped on its head now with the way that well, well, everything's changed, but yes, and you've now got this, um, yeah, the commercialisation of Everest, and you've got the <laughs> a, a fixed robot all the way up Everest and up to say thousand people at base camp, and uh, you know two hundred people trying to get to the top in a day, and everything else. Which I think it's just that is a natural development. It doesn't worry me one little bit. I mean, I think it's great. You have the eight thousand meter peaks have now become honeypots to a degree and the um and the the smaller peaks are attractive as well but you know you they're, they're two completely different things and so that well, both Kanchenjunga and k2 of course are both technically much harder than everest and they also they they're still commercial expeditions are beginning to go to them but you can't do what you can do on Everest, which, let's face it, you know, the South Coal Rouge and Everest is very straightforward. It's a loaded question, but do you think that the commercialisation and the mass summiting of Everest, etc., um, diminishes what other mountaineers do? No, I think uh, I think the what's happened on Everest probably diminishes the um, the attitude which the, the general public have to the mountain. And that therefore they think, oh, Everest, yes, that's the place where you've got you know, 200 people going up the mountain, etc. And also, the, and I think with the media as well, the media now, they can't get their heads around 
the kind of things that Leo's doing. I mean, if you think of it, Leo, he's a superb filmmaker, and he has never managed to get one of his films onto mainstream television. And it's because the media just can't get their heads around it. And they can get their heads around. You know, Everest is quite simple. The, the latest kind of tragedy is, is, yeah, good media stuff and everything else. I think, yeah, I mean, I, don't, I won't go into this in too much detail, but Leo and I are now in the early stages of editing the latest film. And we're trying to work out exactly how to do that. But the reality is that you have to, you don't have to, you know, withhold the truth, but you certainly have to tailor it for a specific audience because the realities of climbing on those trips, it it doesn't come across well on telly because people just want to see big falls and snowstorms. And, you know, we did get lots of creepy crawlies in the jungle that looked great. And the reality was we had a great trip. You know, we had a successful expedition and that doesn't sell films. Which is sad. It is sad. Does it matter to you that... Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, does it matter at all that mountaineering is by its nature elitist? Well, I think, well, no. It, well, I, I, I think the, one of the problems we have in the world we live in is that elitism has become a nasty, dirty word. Whereas in actual fact, to achieve things, you need elitists. And it's, it's, it's the leaders, it's the innovators of either whether it's in science, in writing, climbing, in pretty well everything, you need those exceptional people who actually, they're the people who actually make the new new discoveries or break the new boundaries and do you think there's a solution to that negative mindset um pro probably not i mean i think all one i think all one can do as a communicator and as a, is to actually you're not going to be able to convert the world but at least if one pursues one's own convictions and and create kind of really interesting programs. I mean, it is exclusively why I do this, because I got sick to death of being taught, you know, the, the amount of content we were making, the, the number of seconds per film, we started measuring it in seconds rather than minutes. I just got fed up of throwing the interviews on the cutting room floor because people aren't able to hear these, you know, the real stories, the real opinions. All they see is the 30 second Instagram montage of somebody climbing Everest, usually an influencer who was guided to the top and pretends they weren't. Well, I suppose actually, I mean, no, the one that, film that has been a hugely successful film, it's a very good film too, is of course Free Solo. But I mean, Free Solo is just so extraordinary in itself. Uh, and I think the other film that actually, oh, the other event that did capture a lot was the, that, that, um, for that long, what, 30 day ascent of um, a very hard route on on El Capitan. What was it called? The Dawn Wall. No. The Dawn Wall, yeah. And that, because it was out every day, and that, that was on BBC Breakfast Time every day. But natural fact, that was the, it was the, the longest drawn out sport climb ever, where the risks were minimal. And I think uh, Free Solo, I mean, there, that was, I mean, he had to make just the tiniest mistake and he was dead. And so that was very powerful. Yeah. And it resonates with people because they get the heart wrench. Oh, they? yeah. Mm. Yeah. So to jump back a bit to your expedition life and your history, I guess, did you enjoy the process of being on expedition as well? You know, the base camp life? And things like that. Oh, I love it. No, the, the beauty of expeditions is that you go off 
And especially, you know, my early expeditions, which were pre-internet, pre kind of mobile phones and everything else. And it was wonderful because you, you'd go off and you'd be two months or whatever it was actually on your mountain. And, um, and you were switched off from the world. And, and I found, I mean, I, you longed for your letters from home and they meant a lot to you. But once you'd read them, I must confess, you were back into your little world there. And the beauty of that little world was you could you had loads of leisure. You did the things you liked doing. I mean, I I love playing poker. Uh, I'm, I'm, and then I, I, I discovered bridge, and I love playing bridge. And now my later expeditions, I did try to make absolutely certain that I had a bridge for. <laughs> what um, kind of elements of expedition life or big mountain life did you find crept back home with you? Um, I don't know. No, I don't think they did. I think I, I found that when I'd, I'd get home and Wendy and the kids were there for me and uh, I, 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 I've just went into that. And I think I, I'm the kind, I live in the present and I think I make the most of the present. And so that then I'd be plunged you know, into the present, and you know, and especially I'm in earlier times. I mean, what we lived in Bowden for five years, but even that I thoroughly enjoyed because then we gathered around us. It was amazing. We we were the first kind of climbers, I think, to move into Bowden, and then Nick Escort, and we'd been, who was one of my oldest climbing friends, and he moved in as well. And then in the space of about four years, we had some of the best um, alpinists in Britain climbing in or living in Bowden and Sale and around us. And you had the Tuesday nights was the climb when we all went climbing and, and went you know, whether it was a Frodsham or, or the peak in the summer and so on. So, yeah, because I think that often with, with people like yourself who, you know, you become known for the expeditions mm. and you become known for the bigger sense... But that's twenty percent of your year. Oh, the, well, the, the big expeditions was just a bit of it. I mean, no, the, the the base, the real foundation of your climbing is, is climbing. Yeah, climbing in Britain, and uh, and climbing in the evening. I mean, when we moved up to, well, I bought this house, a holiday place, and then realised we could live here, like, and so we extended it, and um, and there be when I was working on a book or whatever I was working on. I'd usually work through the mornings. I tended, I've always tended, I'm a good early morning person. So I, I, if I'm writing, I do that kind of from about five or six in the morning on. And that is something that Doug is doing at the moment. And because uh, he's, he, you know, he's writing this book on Kanchenjunga. I didn't know that. Oh, gosh. And it'll be, you know, he, did you see his ogre book? Yes. That was brilliant. And the Kanchen Junga one is much bigger because, of course, the ogre, there's no back history. And Doug is fascinating. He's a very, very good researcher. And so the Kanchen Junga book, I think, is going to be absolutely fascinating. But he is, he's now up against the deadline and he's getting up at four or five in the morning and writing the way through there. Then getting up after that, you know, there's a load of can stuff to do as well and everything else. So now he's doing the same kind of thing. Yeah. And what is it that carries on driving you, you know, as you, you know, you do all of these expeditions in your 20s, 30s, 40s, etc. And then, you know, what is it that makes you, and again, it's loaded, but feel the need to climb the old man of Hoy at 80? Well, well, no, I think I, I, I love climbing. And I think the, and I grab climbing whenever I can. I mean, even when I was on my, my big lecture tours and uh, my roadie, Richard Hashko, was a climber. And so we'd always, you know, we, we'd go, we'd get, if we could get climbing that day, we would. And then you go and give the lecture and everything else. And I've always done that throughout my life. So it's, it's not a matter of splitting. You, you just plan, I think you live life to the absolute full um, in whatever you're doing, basically. And you give it, and same with your children. And, um, and we've got a tiny little one and a half acres up in um, the, far, the Northern Highlands 
and I've never built on it. But I, I bought it primarily, it was next door to some friends of ours. And when the children were young, we spent all our Easter holidays there and we'd camp. And um, and then, you know, go climbing, walking and everything else, but sharing it with the kids. Yeah, it's a very positive outlook, mm. I think. Well, I think you've got to be, I think, I think most, no, most successful climbers, I mean, look at Leo, are essentially a, a positive people and I think are happy people because they're doing things they love doing. Yeah, okay. I have to think how to phrase this now. To what extent do you think that's because they have to deal with such extreme scenarios and profound loss? I don't think... Um, I think the, the extreme scenarios come, yeah. If, you, if, you're, if you're climbing at the cutting edge, you're adventuring at the cutting edge, uh, the, it, it is extreme. But the, the extreme things only... I mean, they, they happen, but they don't happen that often. I mean, I suppose my most extreme thing was on the ogre, you know, which was a long, drawn-out kind of epic but at the end of the day it was just you know it was six or seven days and okay six or seven days without anything to eat and with a, a distinct possibility that you weren't going to come out of it alive but that even that you just concentrated on getting through that and now you don't enjoy it but you it doesn't kind of it doesn't kind of wound you um i've lost all too many friends on the climbs, and interestingly, they they were mainly on the the big siege climbs, where there's firstly there's more people, and also um, you're, because of that, and because it's a siege style expedition, you have actually people exposed to risk over a longer period of time. Whereas if say with well, Nick Fowler, for instance. Um, when he like, I mean, he's happiest when he's climbing with just one other person, and their 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 extreme alpine style pushes, and to a degree, same thing with Leo. The kind of climbing he's doing is is very very concentrated, and therefore there's less, there's less likelihood of risk. But when they do happen, uh, I think you yeah you, you go through it, and then the the actual loss of friends. I think is they, we all you know you're you've all been in it, in the same way, and I should say it's a little bit like say, in a war or or that you you know your your fellow soldiers or fellow people exposed to risk and people die around you and a lot of them are really good close friends, but you have to accept it, and I mean the thing that. I can't accept. That's so fun to talk about. Is losing your own child, and that—that that is something you never ever get out. No. And no. even there, I mean, we're just incredibly. I mean, thank God we were both fertile, so we we actually, you know, I mean, um, Daniel was born ten months after we got back. And as so I had, we've had two wonderful children. But still, you know, at times like this, and I just wonder, you know, what would he have been doing? About 53 now and so on. So that, that, is, that is the really hard bit. Yeah. And I mean, before we sat down, or <coughs> we sat down, we hadn't pressed record and you said, you know, you can get hit by a bus, you can, you know, anything can happen to you. Of course, we shouldn't live these sedentary lives, and I suppose maybe what happened there justifies that viewpoint, right? Well, I think it does. Well, I mean, fairly enough, Bill Conn, he was he was an adventurous soul, and you know, he just one he was staying. I was in um, Ecuador at the time, doing. Um, I, I, at that time, I was doing a lot of my work was um, photojournalism. And uh, I was doing a story in in Ecuador, a mountain called Sangai, and 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 I learnt about Conrad's death, and I just headed for home as fast as I possibly could. <coughs> but it well, you know, the it is 
an, an appalling moment. But it was, he was an adventurous little soul and he was actually, Wendy was a, a beautiful voice and she was just going, beginning to go professional as a folk singer. And she was actually rehearsing for her first paid gig um, with some friends up in Glasgow in a lovely garden, a little stream at the bottom of the garden. And she was, you know, felt completely, they had five children. And so Conrad was out with the kids playing in the garden and Wendy felt absolutely safe with that. And then he wandered off, being the adventurous little soul he was, fell into the stream and was drowned. But she, she never fully recovered. No. no, I don't know how anybody could. But did you find it? So you were away on the mountaineering trip. I was doing, no, I was doing. I at that time I was doing, making a living, if you like, out of out of my climbing. But I was doing a lot of um, photojournalistic work, mainly for the Daily Telegraph magazine, and so. I'd go off, and this one was going to a, or a mountain called Sanga. I had a, I was with a, a writer, a guy called Sebastian Snow, and um, and so we were just, yeah, going and climbing Sanga, and was most active, arguably the most active volcano in Ecuador, and um, and I made a real adventure of it because instead of going up the ordinary route, we we went actually into the Amazon basin and climbed it from that side and things like that. And then, you know, it was great. And, uh, and then I heard and hear pure chance. It was um, Simon Clark who was with me on Nupsi. And was, um, yeah, he was a very good climber. And he was actually, he'd gone into the oil business. And so he was the um, shell rep in Ecuador. And so he, the, the the embassy had, you know, been told about this. And they just said, oh, he's somewhere in the, in the wild. We can't do anything about it. And Simon saw it in the paper, went to the embassy. The embassy said, well, we, we don't know where he is. And Simon found out where I was and sent in a runner to let me know. And did you find that then going back out into the mountains after that, was that incredibly difficult or was that healing? I think it was healing. I mean, interestingly, it was, in fact, when, the Oman, when I climbed the Oman of Life, first ascent, and it was about oh, a couple of months after I got back and we were staying um, with Wendy's parents in um, Haywards Heath. And um, Tom Patey, who was young, great friend of mine, and we'd done a fantastic amount together, and Tom phoned me up and said, look, do you fancy, um, he, he was into sea stacks. Um, this is the old man of Hoy, which is the tallest sea stack in Britain, hadn't been climbed, do you fancy coming with me? And I think he did that, basically to help me as a kind of catharsis, which in actual fact is what Leo did. Yeah. Do you think that was conscious? On Leo's part? Yeah. I'm quite sure it was. He told me about that when I said mm. to you before that he told me some stuff when we were climbing. Yeah. He said that he'd mentioned the correlation mm. between the old man of Hoy. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was, and it, and I needed it. And, uh, and I think, yeah, I, I find, yeah, climbing and being in the mountains is, is, is what gives me peace. Yeah. It's really, um, it's hard to sit here and hear you talk about it, obviously, because it's so emotional. But it sounds like that largely you've led a happy life. I think I, I have. I've, I've been incredibly lucky. I mean, I've had, well, two, to have had two wonderful relationships in your life with Wendy and and then with Loretta. And, and that's something very special. Yeah. And did the mountaineering ever detract from those relationships or add to them? No, I don't think so. No, I think the, and I'm, I'd say it's the same with Leo. I mean, there he's got a fantastic marriage, loves his wife and children deeply, and is also loves the adventure. And the important thing is, and the way that 
well, Wendy and Loretta is actually now, she's fairly safe because actually my, my adventure levels are very low at the moment. <laughs> but, um, but no, but I mean, like Wendy was always 100% behind whatever I was doing in exactly the same way as I'm quite sure Jess is. Yeah. And with obvious exceptions to knowing the future and things like that, if you had your time again, would you do it all over? Yeah. Oh no, I think there's no the the point the the what if is a waste of time. I think that there's no. I think you would no. The the mistakes we made, we made loads of mistakes, and the tragedies we become involved in. You you want to learn from that, but you don't want to wallow in it. And I think one of the really sad things, and I see it all too often with, you know, friends of ours who've lost their partner, and. Sometime, the the person can't let that go, and he's therefore trapped in tragedy into the past. And I think, I think positive people. And I think I've yes, I've I've had a wonderful, amazing kind of life, and uh, and most of it's been extraordinarily happy. And there's been yeah, times of absolute total tragedy, but. That you know that that is part of what life is. Yeah. Do you find power in the? I mean, it's a, I think it's a fact. I would say that you inspire other people to step outside. I feel uh, yeah. I feel that that I feel yeah. Both humbled and hugely satisfied, and I think that in a way. Um, it doesn't justify. I mean, I'm doing, doing selfishly what I love doing, but I think as well. I think I do. I am a communicator, and I think in in my writing and my lecturing, I'm actually I'm not talking just to my fellow climbers. I'm actually trying to. I, I my challenge is is to try to be able to communicate to the lay person the thing I love doing. Yeah, I mean, I look at it. You know, these days you're either on the light side or the dark side of truth and honesty and living an authentic life i think it's fair to say you're firmly on the light side given you know what we're facing with twitter and daily mail and all of that stuff which we just shouldn't talk about but well i think no i think i think the terrifying thing no i think the the combination of all of that i think the well yeah i think one can talk one's got should be politically aware um, I, th I think the the country and our society is is at a state of huge danger and risk, and on so many different fronts. And um, and I think from that is, does one jump out and help try to change it all? And I think my age now, I think I I, do, I, I try to be. I think. I am as honest as I possibly can be. If I haven't managed to get up a climb, I say so. If we didn't get quite to the top, we didn't get quite to the top. And I'd never, you know, the, the number of people who have made highly dubious claims of their ascents. I think it's champion. And I'd say Leo is that the same kind of person, sir. Yeah, well, that was really interesting on the last one. He said to me, this is the first time I've set out to do what I wanted to do. Uh, sorry, the first time I've achieved it. Um, you know, we've never done it free before. There's always been, you know, a little bolt ladder here or a rivet mm. ladder or something. And yeah. it's taken 10 years. And he could have so easily, you know, how many moves would it really have been that he'd had? You know? Oh, no, no, it's, it's absolutely. Well, it's very, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I think his, his, his last, that, that Antarctic trip, was absolutely amazing, but the trouble is, it well it, even for me, it it was quite difficult to get my head around it completely, until I I, I saw, well I saw his 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 first little film about it, which I thought was brilliant, but it it gave the, the extraordinary thing what he was doing, and of course now what isn't his dream is to to actually reckon he could do it from essentially from um, what's it now where you, you land uh, Union Glacier yeah where is it uh, no don't, don't you land at um, you fly you're flown into Antarctica aren't you yeah 
you fly into, if I'm right, I might not be, you fly into Union. Mm. But then to do coast to coast, you'd have to go another 20 or so miles yeah, back. that's right. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll see. He's got always got lots of irons in the fire. Or maybe you should do. I mean, the, the truth, I've got interestingly with um, Robin Knox Johnson, a great friend of mine, and he's got a, a, a project which we want to do in uh, 2021, which is um, sailing from uh, from Plymouth, where, where the boat is. And he, he's just got it's a new yacht. There's his own personal sailing boat. And it's a absolutely, you know, state of the art. But it, it is a, it's a cruising yacht. It's not a racing yacht. And what he wants, so we want to sail from from Plymouth, where it is, all the way out to Greenland, and then go up that east coast of Greenland and see how far we can get to see what the, you know, just how extreme the um, the actual kind of, yeah, kind of, the, of the, the, the ice yeah. caps and everything are, and then sail all the way back again. And um, and we're going to so Loretta and I are going to go on that one. And it's going to be about eight of us on the boat. That sounds brilliant. And the great thing to me is that the, I, I, I th the thought on we did it, of course uh, with the Suheli, but with the Suheli because it was an incredibly slow little boat. It took us uh, I think it was eight days to get across um, the Atlantic to Iceland. And uh, Robin reckons that. In his present boat, we could do it in four comfortably, <laughs> and I, I could stand four days in the Atlantic. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a pretty good thing to be doing at eighty-six, is it? Yeah. Um, I'll be eighty-six then. And yeah. Ro Ro Robin's Ashenay's a mere youth; he's about four years younger than me. <laughs> okay, so um, last few questions. Um, what? And these are slightly sort of quicker. What worries you? Interpret that however you wish. I think um, I think getting older now. There's no doubt about it. Um, I am getting quite absent-minded, and I I think actually, yeah. I think basically, you know, losing, basically creeping into old age particularly with you know whether it's alzheimer's or what have you that 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 frightens me yeah and what gives you hope i think give me hope i think living life to the full um my love for Lorato. and i think uh, yeah just um yeah they're just living life to the full basically but um but i think Love is the most important thing in life. Yeah. It's good if you can realise that. Mm, and I'm just incredibly lucky that I have. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a cheesy question that I'll turn on its head. So normally people ask, you know, what what would you tell your younger self and things like that? What would eighteen what advice could eighteen year old Chris give to you that you sometimes maybe forget? Um just trying to think of my younger son Rupert who lives in Keswick and he's <laughs> he's always like I think it's just actually stop worrying that's probably the best advice and anyway. I am a bit of a worrier so that now if I say stop worrying just live life in the present and it's good and then my my very very last question which I don't I normally end it there but um you know, they say that um, true friendship is the highest form of any relationship, whether that's love or friendship, etc. Um, a life in the mountains, you know, absolutely creates strong bonds. Why is that? I think, well, you, yeah, I mean, let's face it, most of my close friends are climbers. Um, and I think you've been through so much that um, it, and literally of course in that process you're placing your life in their hands they're placing their lives in your hands and that creates a very very strong kind of bond of friendship yeah 
yeah okay we'll leave it there thanks very much for being so honest and open thanks for listening for more information visit the adventurepodcast.co.uk as you'll know by now the podcast is partnered with sidetrack magazine sidetracked are a real tour de force in the world of adventure media Uh, i've personally read every issue cover to cover and i'd implore you to grab a cup of tea explore the website and order a copy or two for that extra adventure fix the podcast is hosted by matt pycroft and produced and distributed by pip saunders and alex hall as ever check us out on instagram join the growing community and please please do leave us a review on itunes The reviews obviously make a huge difference to us and it's really important to us to take and receive the feedback that you share. I hope you're finding ways to get outside and enjoy your own adventures and stay tuned for the rest of season three.